let's read from Matthew chapter 9, and then we'll pray. We'll begin in verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demon by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, uh, still our minds and quiet our hearts this morning. and Lord, help us to focus uh, every fiber on you, Lord, and on hearing of your word. Lord, whether we live or die, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to you. And as your slaves, Lord, we desire nothing more. There's no thing more satisfying to us than to know that we have pleased our Master. That is what we live for. And Father, to know how to please you, we need to know what pleases you. This morning, Lord, I pray that you teach us what pleases you. That you teach us what you're looking for. We thank you for your word, Lord. Um, Were it not for your word, we wouldn't know you. We wouldn't know and, and see the things you're about, the way you act, the way you lived. And Lord, we ask that you form us into your image, the image of your Son, and help us to follow in your footsteps. May this word be satisfying to our souls. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I guess in its simplest form, we are, we're just looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, we've heard his words, and now we're seeing his life watching the way he deals with a leper, watching the way uh, a woman with an issue of blood comes to him, uh, four men who bring a paralyzed friend, and, and just sitting back and observing, watching how Jesus is, and looking at the people that are coming to him. He has already said, you know, look, it's not the healthy that go to the doctor, but the sick. And there was a whole group of sick religious people called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They thought they were so healthy, but they were truly sick. They needed a doctor, but they would not go to the doctor. They had that denial that we all have. You know, I'm not sick. It's only a flesh wound. You know, I'll be okay. 
but they had that denial. And so we, we continue to press on through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the biography of the king. And we see him not just as the king. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. When I think of king or president or leader or ruler, oftentimes, what, what are some of the words that come to your mind? Maybe power, authority, control, decisions. Maybe those are some of the words that come to your mind. When you, Maybe some other words come to your mind too. Uh, but we won't talk about those this morning. Jesus is a leader a king in the same sense that David was. You know, Israel had chosen Saul. He was the people's choice. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. He was head and shoulders. He was a full head taller. I mean, this is the guy, if you were going to have a leader, it would be him. I mean, he's big and he's strong and he's, oh, he's handsome. And this is the guy that can lead. I mean, this is, and they chose Saul and Saul was a terrible king. And, and then God says, okay, now it's my choice. And I choose David. And he was a little shepherd boy. And God called him because he wanted a ruler who would shepherd people. What a concept that is. I thought about that. And I thought, you know, would we, would we look at Barack Obama and we'd say, is this a guy who's a shepherd of his people? Would we look at the Queen of England and say, here, there's a woman who's a shepherd of her people. And just notice that those two words normally don't go hand in hand. Shepherd with king or ruler. But they do go hand in hand in the life of Jesus. And so we see him not just as the king, but as the shepherd king. And and we'll get into some of those implications as we continue to study on. But first we meet these two blind men. Uh, Verse 27, we see the two blind men. They are two blind men with great vision. Take a note of that. They were two blind men who, who had no limitations in the spiritual world. They could see things that others did not see. So let's read verse 27. Jesus departed from there. Where is there? There was the house of Jairus, where he had just raised his daughter from the dead. And you can read about that. But So he just leaves this great miracle. He had no doubt crowds following, uh, watching and walking with him. and, And he raises that daughter, although only the parents and Peter, James, and John were there with him. But no doubt, you know, she comes out, and, and people know that this stuff is happening. And so as he leaves that house, uh, these two blind men who had been following him, no doubt I mean, following along with the crowd, somehow being led by friends or however it was that they were being led or following him, and they're crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we don't know how these guys became blind, but we know that that was what they had joined themselves, that, that was the common thing that they shared. And we find ourselves gravitating toward People that are like us. They shared, they could understand each other. They're both blind. Now, were they blind from birth? Was it it something that happened in utero? Was it uh, a medical thing that had happened? A disease, an infection, a trauma to the eyes? We don't know any of that information. We do know that they looked at blindness as, again, a punishment from God. And and a result of sin. Uh, You remember in John chapter 9, the man that was born blind. They say, well, whose fault is it that he was born blind? Was it his parents' fault? Did they sin and make him blind? Or was it his fault? Now, how could you sin? He was born blind, so he must have sinned in utero somehow, causing his blindness. That's what they believed. That's what they believed. So here come these two blind men, and they are uh, not keeping their mouths shut. They are crying out 
to Jesus. And they don't say, hey, Jesus, have mercy on us. What do they say? They say, son of David. Now, we would normally just read right over that and go, well, I guess that's another name for Jesus. I don't really know what that means. Um, Obviously, Jesus' father's name was not David. It was Joseph. But son of can mean a descendant of as well. So on one sense, as they cry out to Jesus calling him son of David, it means that they recognize that Jesus was a king in a biological sense. He was a descendant of David. They could track his lineage all the way back, and maybe you've tracked your family heritage back to somebody famous. Jesus' family heritage goes back to the line of the kings in Israel. So in biological sense, son of David means, hey, we recognize that you are a king. But in a prophetic sense, Son of David is a messianic term. They're recognizing Jesus as the Savior that was to come for Israel. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So they're recognizing Jesus is this Savior that was promised by the Scriptures. Promised by the Old Testament. And son of David means that they were expecting Jesus to fulfill those promises. One of those promises of the time when God would set up his kingdom on the earth and the time when this Savior would come was that captives would be set free and the blind would receive their sight. So there's a great expectation and an understanding that this is what's going on. So Jesus says to them, they had actually, they had come into the house forced their way in somehow, been led in. And the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, so somehow they must have caught his attention, do you believe that I am able to do this? What a question. And the word to be able is dunamis in the Greek. It's where we get dynamite. It's do, we, do you have the power? Do you believe I have the power to do this? And that's where we question God in our day and age, isn't it? We don't often question his willingness to do it. Maybe sometimes we do, but we often question his power. I've got this going on, and I don't think Jesus can really handle this. I don't know that he can really. We won't admit it, but sometimes we question the power of God because we've seen things we expected, and they didn't happen like we expected. or It didn't work out the way we thought it should, and so we question God's power. And that's what they're at. That's what Jesus wants to know. Do you believe that I have the power to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. It's a strong affirmation. And I thought about that. I thought about what if, what if we asked that question in church? You know, do you believe that I have the power to do this? We'd say, yeah, uh, honestly, no, Lord, we don't. You know, Lord, we, uh, we've been following the crowd, and, and we've seen you do things for other people. But uh, honestly, Lord, I, I don't believe you have the power to do it for me. Would, would, would that be what we would say, honestly? Or could we say with the two blind men, the the voice of faith, yes, Lord. Honestly, Lord. And they didn't say that. They they didn't say, honestly, Lord, you know, we'd love to believe you could do it. We'd love you to believe you had the power, but we really don't. They really did. And so they say to him, yes, Lord, master. Submission. They were submitting to him as king. Verse 29 says, "Then, then he touched their eyes. Now, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, see, and they would have saw. But he touches their eyes, and he says to them, according to your faith, let it be to you. Uh, 
Now, is this, and sometimes we, we talk about name it and claim it theology. How many of you know what that is or what that means? Name it and claim it theology. There is a teaching out there that basically we are in charge and God serves us. We tell him what we want. We claim it by faith and we use that exact wording because the wording is very important, evidently. Uh, we say, we claim it in the name of Jesus that he's going to, you know, so I get a big mortgage on a new house that I know I can't afford, but I'm claiming it in Jesus' name, and somehow Jesus is supposed to step in and provide all this extra finances for me. But that's, and, and so by my faith, it's going to be. It's going to come to reality because I believe it. And so is this teaching that? Is that what's being said here? Again, I want to remind you, their faith is not in their faith. Does that make sense? Their faith is not in their faith. Like the more faith we have, the more we work it up and drum up our faith, then that's going to force God to act because of our faith. That would put faith in my faith. My faith is in the promises of God, the word of God. And they knew that God's word promised recovery of sight to the blind. And so their faith was in the word of God. Now, this gets confusing Because a couple of chapters, I won't go into it in detail, but in a couple of chapters, we're going to see John the Baptist in prison. And from prison, John the Baptist says, can you send message to Jesus and ask him, hey, are are you the one or should we expect another? Because in John's life, he's in prison and he knows the word of God says, set the captives free. That's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to set the captives free. There he sits in prison saying, well, if he's really the Messiah... I should be getting set free. And so we see that these things also have very spiritual connotations. There was a group of people who were blind spiritually. I was blind. Were you blind spiritually before you guys? You know, the funny thing about it is I never realized how blind I was till I got saved. And started to see things through the eyes of Jesus and through, through the, the eyes of the word of God. Man, I had no clue about so many things in life. And... Th- one of the things I love about you know, baptizing new believers and seeing this church continue to reach out to the unsaved, seeing people come in and get a brand new start. Man, when you get saved, everything is new. It's like I remember when we got saved, we invited our pastor to the house at the time, and we just said, you know, here's our farm. What do we do with it? I mean, are we supposed to have animals? Are we supposed, should we sell this stuff? We didn't know what to do. We were just looking. Everything was new. So we're looking for some kind of guidance as to what it means now to be a Christian. Because our eyes are open, and we realize, wow, we, we need to learn how to live. We need to learn what to do. And so we began to try to find someone that knew more than us that we could ask. And he was very gracious to us at the time, and, and it was a wonderful conversation. But the expression of our hearts was, man, our eyes are open. We're saved. Our, our, the, the eyes of our minds that were previously blinded have now been opened, and, and we're seeing things new. I I look at my children different. I look at my house different. I look at my possessions different. I look at my money differently. I look at my life differently. Everything, my job was different. My job became something that just supported my ministry habit. We're we're, we're like a non-denominational church. You can laugh. But only if it's funny, though. There's a much greater blindness than the physical blindness. See, these guys were blind physically, but they could see Jesus as the Savior. They knew where to go. 
Maybe you know someone who right now, the Bible says that you can have your mind blinded by the God of this age. And maybe you know someone that is destroying their lives and they can't even see it. They're making decisions and making choices and they're clueless. They see me because you can see it. But they don't see it. Man, pray that that, that the eyes of their minds would be opened and that they would see what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of the love of God for them. Their, their minds would be open. So they see, let it be according to your faith. Again, faith is the key word. Believing what God said. Taking, there's so many things that we never lay hold of that God told us we could have because we don't believe that it's really for us. So many things. So their eyes were open. And then, boom, they come open. The first thing they see is what? Jesus. Looking right at him. Ah, that's what you look I mean, I heard your voice. But I, now I put a, a face with a name and a, with a voice. And it's a great thing. Just seeing Jesus there. First thing. And this is great. Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. Now, this, if I was Jesus, I'd be saying, go tell everybody. Go let everybody know. But it's interesting. He says, on and on, you know, we see this happening. Go and, and tell nobody. Don't, don't let anybody know what happened. And a lot of people will speculate about why Jesus is saying those things. You know, maybe because he doesn't want to create a massive political uproar, which would have happened. They would have tried to forcibly make him king at that time, and it wasn't time yet. Maybe he doesn't want to become popular for miracles only, but also for his teaching. Maybe because it wasn't time for the crucifixion yet. You know, we can speculate on why he tells people, but here's the thing. What would you do if Jesus sternly warned you to do anything or not to do something? Man, you think we'd listen, right? It's, it doesn't say he just told them. It says he sternly warned them. You ever been sternly warned by a parent or a teacher? Now listen, don't you do that. You go, ah, okay, I guess he means it. Well, what did they do? Verse 31, when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. They ignored a stern warning from Jesus. Now it's interesting to me because they, despite, here's Jesus Warning them not to do it, and, and maybe they tried not to, but they just couldn't help it because we love to tell others what's happening in our lives, don't we? We really do. If we see a good movie, we love to tell people. Matter of fact, in, in this day and age, we love to tell people even the, the minute details by updating our Facebook status. I mean, if these guys had Facebook, you think they'd have updated their status? Now, once was blind, but now I see. We love to tell people about us, about what's happening in our lives. Did they have to go to six weeks of training on evangelism to tell people what happened in their lives? Did they need to to have pastors and churches cheerleading them to get out and tell their story? No, they didn't. They couldn't help it. They couldn't stop because their lives had really been touched. And I think one of the struggles for the church is that the, the church gets filled with people that come to church but have never really had a true encounter of the saving grace of Jesus Christ that changed their lives. And I truly believe, and I just, I've seen it in my life. Man, when I got saved, I couldn't help but tell people. And still, to this day, still telling people about Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm carrying tracks out on the downtown mall. That's one way. 
What it means is when you meet people on a plane. I was telling the folks Wednesday night, I love starting conversations on airplanes or buses or wherever I might be. I just ask simply, so what do you do for a living? And I know that what's going to happen, eventually the conversation will come back around. They'll ask me, what do you do for a living? And boom, I'm in. Right? (laughs) So you've got to be creative. And you've got to want to tell people your story. And then, you know, you're meeting people, and they're talking to you about what's going on and what's going on. And all you're thinking is, how am I going to to get this conversation derailed to their spiritual lives? And whether or not they're going to heaven or hell, and do they know about Jesus? How am I going to get the conversation twisted that direction? So you know, know that when you're talking to me. I'm not listening. I'm just trying to get you back to Jesus. No, I do. I'm just kidding. I do listen. I do listen. I do listen. Um, but that's, it's, a, it's simple. It's simple. And if you haven't had a time in your life, if you can't sit here and say, Jesus Christ has changed my life, then it's possible that you're not saved, that you've not had that time of repentance because the word repentance that's essential to the gospel means change. And if there's no change, there's probably been no repentance. And if there's no repentance then there's no salvation. And you're still walking the way you've always walked. But if you have had that time, I would encourage you to let people know. Because it's real, isn't it? Was it real in your life? Did God really change your life? Then maybe he really wants to change that person's life too. They spread the news. In all the country they went out. So we move on, verse 32. And as they went out, so the two blind guys go out and they they start... Heading out to, to not tell everybody. Oops. And behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And from that verse, we don't know that the things are connected. just happens to have two things that are rotten in his life. But verse 33 says, And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. No details about how the demon was cast out. But now we see that this demon uh, is connected to his inability to, to speak. And we see that from time to time in the scriptures, not always, but from time to time we recognize that sometimes there is a, a demonic influence in a person's life that does cause a physical problem to manifest. There was a woman who was bent over for 18 years, and Jesus cast out the demon, and she stood up straight. We see those things happen in the scriptures. And so as this mute man begins to speak he, he he you know as soon as he could open his mouth well he starts talking i wonder what he said you know i don't know the multitudes marveled saying it was never seen like this in israel man this has never happened before in all of our history you know, in the history of israel we're studying wednesday nights the ministry of elisha the prophet probably more miracles connected with elijah recorded in the bible than any other prophet And miracles were connected to not the priests or the Levites, but the prophets. They were the miracle workers in biblical times and in the Old Testament. And so they say, man, Elisha had all these miracles, but nothing like this. John the Baptist, he was the New Testament or the last Old Testament prophet. He didn't do any miracles. He announced the, the, the Christ. And we know that all of these things, as they say, this has never been seen in all Israel. They know... And understood that this was a unique time in their history. They were seeing the fulfillment 
of things written, for instance, in Isaiah 35. Listen to this. Isaiah 35 says, of the time of the kingdom. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. Remember the paralytic man? And the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. They knew it. They un- the multitudes are understanding what's happening. But, but, verse 34, here's our friends, the Pharisees, the skeptics. The Pharisees said, see the difference? There's a contrast here that you're supposed to see. The multitudes marveled, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Yeah, 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 you know. The Pharisees wrongly understand or wrongly claim that Jesus is being empowered by evil or by wickedness. Demonic powers. That is very close to blasphemy. So my question is, do you sympathize with Jesus? Have you been out there serving and working and sacrificing only to have some skeptic or critic or cynic find some flaw in your ministry or some flaw? You know, you've, you've poured out yourself. You've given up a lot to, to serve the Lord. And then there, there will always be that person or that group that is just never satisfied. You just, you did it, it was close, but you didn't quite get it right. You had this one mistake you did. This one thing was wrong. Or they'll find something to criticize, even if there is nothing to criticize. Just understand this. There will always be those you cannot please. No matter what you do, you can do everything right. And the critic will still find something to criticize. You know what? Minister anyway. Mother Teresa has a great quote about that. You know, you're going to build and other people will tear down. Build anyway. You're going to sacrifice and people are going to think you have wrong motives. Sacrifice anyway. Because it's not between you and them. It's not between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus said, I must do the will of my Father. He must. I must do this. I have no choice. This is what I must do. And so he does it. There will be criticism, there will be suspicion, there will be negativity. I pray that you guys are strong enough to ignore that and to not be derailed by that. If you are a people pleaser, it will be hard. May God break us of our people pleasing and make us God pleasers. Or do you sympathize more or are you more like the Pharisees? Maybe you are a sanctified critic. That's your gift. When you got saved, you got the gift of criticism. And here's the thing. Are the Pharisees casting out demons? Say no. No. Are the Pharisees healing the paralytics? Say no. No. Are the Pharisees opening the eyes of the blind? No. Okay, just so we're all on board together here. They are on the sidelines, not doing the works that Jesus is doing, and yet feeling the need because they are envious, because they are jealous, They are feeling the need to criticize. And understand, again, the minute you do something daring, you may fail. And I have found that it tends to be a trend in purple people, purple people, that are afraid of failure, not purple, people, that are afraid of failure, they will tend to not do anything. See, if you don't do anything, then you can't fail. So what you do is you maintain for yourself an outward image of self-righteousness, where people think, and, and you can tell them and, and show them that you are very skilled. 
at nothing. But you've never failed at doing nothing. So somehow it earns you the right to criticize other people who are doing something because you've never failed at nothing. Figure that one out on the way home. In 1910, Theodore Roosevelt addressed the Sorbonne University in France on the topic of individual citizenship. He explained through this lengthy speech, which I read parts of it and pieces of it last night, he explained that uh, the success or failure of of a nation depends largely on the way the average individual does his or her every day, day in and day out, duty in the affairs of their lives, as well as the occasional opportunity for something heroic. I'm going to read uh, one quote from the speech. He said, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work, which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness, a detachedness, which will not accept contact with life's realities, all these are marks, not of superiority, but of weakness. They mark the men unfit to bear their part painfully in the stern strife of living who seek in the affection of contempt for the achievements of others to hide from others and from themselves in their own weaknesses. The role is easy, there is none easier, save only the role of the man who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. Now, I quoted that because out of that same speech, the next quote comes, and I wanted to give you the context. Maybe you've heard this speech before from Teddy Roosevelt or this quote, this is what comes next. It is not the critic who counts. Oh, this is one of my favorite quotes. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is not effort without error and shortcomings. But who does actually strive to do the deed? who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I think the church needs a dose of that. I think we get so scared of failing. We we, want to please Jesus, true. But we get so scared that in trying to please Jesus, we'll do something wrong that we forget to try new things. we're, We're paralyzed because we're scared to fail. And we're scared to fail because when we have, the church has lambasted us for it. And I pray that this fellowship is one of grace. And we're one of God's people here, you know, where there's a freedom to do and try as long as it is lining up with the heart of God. That we do and we try and we fail. Once you have failed, you're worth a lot more. Because you won't make that mistake again, hopefully. And I think we have too much of that in the church, of this fear of of criticism and failure. Look, folks, in a minute we're going to talk about Jesus sending out his labors into the harvest. And that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. The Pharisees can look on and criticize and blame and charge. But you know what? Dare. Dare. I dare you to dare. I dare you to try something new. Challenging. Different. To get out there and and get with people. You know, I appreciate stories I hear. I heard of a story of a pastor who he and his uh, 
his assistant pastor, decided to start a, a new ministry. And it was a bit edgy. They were going to the bar to minister to the people that were there drinking away their sorrows. Now, they weren't drinking themselves, but do you know what people would think? What will the congregation say when they hear they saw you coming out of that bar? And, you know, I'm not... What I'm saying is I appreciate the fact that he was willing to daringly go where, where people that were in need were and to minister to them, despite, no doubt, the criticism they would receive. Jesus was accused of being a wine-bibber, a drunk, because he hung out with people who drank. Now, Jesus did not uh, partake on that level. We know that. But do you see, somebody say, we see what you're saying, Pastor. We understand. We understand. We're not just content to sit in a building and go through the motions. We want to do what pleases Jesus. We want to get out and serve him and see people's eyes open. We want to see people speak and say good things with their mouths. Not all the junk that comes out of so many people's mouths. Verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But, verse 36, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus is traveling with these multitudes. There is healing there. Notice it wasn't healing. He didn't just have a healing ministry. He had a teaching ministry that was connected to healing. The teaching was instruction. Jesus was primarily an instructor. He was a savior, yes, but he instructed people. And then he proclaimed the kingdom. And then in conjunction with those two things to prove the reality of what he was saying, he healed. Only to show the value and the validity of his words. That's the point of the miracles. To validate his word. And so he's preaching, healing, and primarily teaching. And and all these diseases, people being healed, people following him. And he sees these multitudes. And what does he see? He sees these people as sheep without a shepherd. They were mangy. Now, again, let's look at what these words mean. They were literally harassed, discouraged. They were um, sickly, fatigued. All, what happens when a sheep does not have a shepherd? Sheep, we just got two lambs for Madeline's 4-H project. Sheep are dependent on their shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is, is subject to disease is subject to predators, is subject to hunger and thirst and confusion and a a number of other things. The sheep are dependent on the shepherd. Now, did these sheep, the people, the multitudes, were they supposed to have a shepherd? Did they have shepherds? Somebody say, yes, they had shepherds. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, were supposed to be working as the shepherds, the priests. But they were lousy shepherds, and it's better to have no shepherd than a lousy shepherd, and a lousy shepherd is no shepherd at all. And so, although they had shepherds, the shepherds were hard on them. The shepherds were making them carry burdens. You know, one of the things I love about Calvary Chapel, one, not Calvary Chapel in general, but, but the, the senior of the senior pastors, Chuck Smith, he was always very distinct about don't beat the sheep. Because sometimes pastors... 
try to get their flock to do this and do that. So they beat them up from the pulpit. You're not, you're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. And bam, 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 the sheep get beat up. And you leave every week and you crawl out of here knowing that the pastor was right. We don't do enough. We don't serve. We don't pray enough. We don't read enough. And you just feel discouraged and weak and fatigued. And, and just more, more, more. And Chuck Smith in his wonderful wisdom said, feed the sheep. Just feed the sheep. Care for the sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then beat my sheep. No, that's not what he said. (laughs) He said, if you love me, feed. Feed my sheep. And that's why every week we try to lay out a good spread from the word of God. Not simply, you know, a number of wonderful stories about me and my family and not great music and those things are good and they help us in our worship of God and uh, but the word of God is the food for the flock and you need it to be healthy and healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep there was a two guys that were walking through the woods and they come upon this great big hole and they're looking down in it Thinking, man, it looks deep. How deep do you think it is? I don't know. Let's go get some pebbles, and we'll drop them in, and we'll see if we can hear. So they get these pebbles, and they drop them in, and man, they can't hear anything. Well, that must be a deep hole. So let's get let's get something big. Let's get a, a a big rock, you know, some big big rocks, and we'll throw those in. So they get these big rocks, and they they throw them in, and no, they still don't hear anything. So finally, they get a, a big boulder, you know, they both carry it, heave it over there, throw that in, and they still don't hear anything. And the one guy looks over into the, to the woods. He says, man, there's a big railroad tie over there. I mean, we'll throw that thing in, and that'll certainly, we'll, we'll hear how deep this hole is. So they get that railroad tie, and they drag it over there. They dump it in the hole, and down it goes, and they're waiting to hear. And all of a sudden, this sheep comes tearing out of the woods, just running as fast as it can, just as fast as its little legs will carry it. It goes right past these two guys and jumps clear into the hole, and down it goes. And they're looking like, man, that was weird. What was that all about? And then pretty soon a shepherd comes out of the woods. And he goes, hey, I'm looking for my sheep. Have you guys seen my sheep? And they're like, well, yeah, we, we, the sheep just came out of the woods there. And he ran as fast as he could right past. And he jumped in the hole. And he said, no, nah, that couldn't be my sheep. My sheep was chained to a railroad tie. <laughs> now, you're waiting to see how I'm going to connect that to this passage, aren't you? church church obligation has us running so fast has us we're it's like we're chained and where do we end up guys in a pit see there's the connection see it's like being chained to that railroad okay it's a stretch Uh, there's a link in there somewhere i know it (laughs) oh man let's move on so, be that as it may, Phil, would you come back up quickly, please? But it's true. You know, um, God is looking for men to shepherd after his own heart, uh, to feed, to care for the flock, so that the flock stays healthy. And uh, that was, it, it was so, and it, the Bible says it moved him. It moved him. Now, we use the word moved, right? We watch something on TV, and it moves us. But it really doesn't move us because we don't actually do anything. This, was, this verse, it's a, it, there's a, a parallel verse in Mark chapter 6 
that when Jesus saw the, the multitudes, that they were like sheep not having a shepherd. He had compassion on them. He sat down and he taught them. You see, when you are moved, truly moved by something, Jesus was touched in his gut by the condition of God's people. And it made him get up and do something. Or actually made him sit down and do something. He taught the people that had been, had all these heavy burdens laid on them by the religious system. He saw that they were tired and fatigued religiously, spiritually. And he wanted to fill them. And he was moved. He acted on it. What moves you? What moves you? We watch the news and we can be, un, we can be touched but not moved. I think a lot of us get touched but not moved. And I want to know what moves you. What moves you? When you hear that guy talk from GFA about the pastors in India, does that move you? When you hear about the ministry in Colombia and the kids down there, does that move you? When you hear we're sharing the gospel in downtown mall, does that move you? A trip to Ukraine, does that move you? A need in the children's ministry, does that move you? What moves you? So he turns to his disciples, verse 37, and said, The harvest truly is plentiful. Man, the harvest is still plentiful. We live in the time of the harvest, folks. Once the harvest is ready, it'll be brought in. But right now, the harvest is still being prepared. There are still wheat and grain that is ripening. The harvest is plentiful. God is in charge of the harvest. But he says, the laborers are few. We've got lots of supervisors. Lots of people to talk about how plentiful the harvest is. We sit in our places and we talk about, man, the harvest is plentiful. We need to send out workers. Yes, let's talk about, let's have meetings. We'll have committees, workers sending out committees and talk about how it needs to be workers sent out into the harvest. And I just appreciate the folks that do it. And church is still that way. The kingdom of God is still that way. There is so much work to do. Why doesn't the harvest get brought in? What is it? I know in our garden, it's usually two things, busyness or laziness. That's in our garden. We've got tomatoes on the vine, but ah, I've got here to go and there to go and this place to go and all these things to do and I've got grass to cut and then morning comes and night. It's hot out during the day and I want to get out in the garden in the heat and then, and then you go out and then, man, there's a rotten tomato on there. I missed it. I missed it because I was either too lazy or too busy. And so this is what happens when the harvest gets left out there um, because God's people are either too lazy or too busy uh, doing the work of the world. Again, I'll remind you, the world is not coming to take in the harvest. So if the church doesn't do it, then who will? If, and that doesn't mean on a foreign international mission field. That can be the harvest right where you work, right in your family, right in your neighborhood. So what's the remedy? He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And literally, it's not send out. It's more forceful than that. It means to force out or push out. We have to pray. And I challenge this congregation as we close up that um, for the next couple of weeks or months or years, pray along this line. Pray, God, push out, shove out, throw out laborers into your harvest. And then... Ask God if maybe it's you that he wants to send. Pray and then go. That's the biblical uh, model. Pray and then expect that God may send you. Who knows where? Who knows where? But we need laborers in the field, don't we? Those that are out there laboring, laboring are getting tired. 
waiting for the uh, others to come alongside and help gather in the harvest of people's souls. This is eternal stuff. It's good. Amen? Father, uh, Lord, whatever has touched a heart soul here today i pray that that the heart would be uh not like that soil that is hard and that satan would not simply steal that word as they leave i pray that that word would not be choked out nor would it be um, withered withered by the heat lord i pray that that would land on good fertile soil and that you would continue to um, make us Into your image, Lord, thank you for taking such good care and being the good shepherd that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.